Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shibivani. One of the most respected players in global health is Partners in Health, an organization rooted in social justice that was founded 35 years ago in Haiti. With a staff of over 19,000, Partners in Health works in impoverished communities in 11 countries to ensure access to quality healthcare. Today, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Sheila Davis to raise the line. She's the Chief Executive Officer of Partners in Health to talk about the organization's current work and how to strengthen the healthcare system before the next pandemic, among other important topics. Dr. Davis is a nurse and social justice activist with a long history of serving the poor and marginalized, starting with her work with the HIV AIDS community in the 1980s. She was a clinician in the Infectious Diseases Clinic at the Massachusetts General Hospital for more than 15 years. And for the past decade, she has held multiple roles at Partners in Health, including Chief of Ebola Response, Chief of Clinical Operations, and Chief Nursing Officer. So Sheila, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to start first with learning more about you and what got you interested in a career in healthcare and then specifically nursing. Yeah, so I never planned on being a nurse. Um, it was um, in high school in my senior year, all of a sudden I just said, oh, I'm going to go and major in nursing, which was a, a shock for everyone. So unclear where that came from, but definitely has been an amazing profession, amazing career and allowed me to do so many things which has has been you know rewarding and amazing and continue to learn every day in this um in this and really see that nursing has shown us that it's possible to do so many different things i think far beyond what i thought was possible at age 19 yeah it's a tremendous career and i, I think um we've had fortunately met a number of wonderful nursing leaders um, and clinicians on our podcast, including Elizabeth Aero, who you may know, she's the chief yes. officer of the WHO. And similar to you, like has had a career both being a clinician and then becoming a leader, nursing leader, mm -hmm. or just leader in general of a very large and influential health organization. So one thing that always impresses us about meeting nursing leaders like yourself is the commitment to lifelong learning and how those mm -hmm. careers can evolve. So for the nursing students in our audience, and we have well over 100,000 registered nursing students on the Osmosis platform, you know, I know they'd be very interested in hearing about your decision to kind of keep leveling up and pursue a doctor of nursing practice uh, and what value that credential or, or your, you know, the credentials in general have had on your career progression. It's not that I had a plan to go from being a, a bedside nurse to being a CEO of a, of a huge organization, but I think I became involved in the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 80s as a nursing student. And that really shifted my career to be a very social justice focused. And Every, you know, when I look back on it, every point when I made a decision to change jobs or to, you know, bec first become a nurse practitioner and then get then get my doctorate, it was because I was trying to see where I could contribute to this movement I was so passionate about, which was, um, you know, HIV and AIDS and, and morphed into global health equity. So I I think I saw education at each step as a way of getting more skills and more um, knowledge to be able to contribute to this area that I thought was so critical and, and was so passionate about. So it is, I, I think education or even putting yourself out there to make a decision to go for a job or something 
is um, if you're following your passion, then that makes sense. And you and you take risks and you're bold and you're courageous and you do it. I think for people who are maybe just trying to map out what they want the career to be or where they end up, to me, that wouldn't have worked because that wasn't my authentic self. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. Um, and I think a, a common theme we hear from guests like yourself is that desire and ability to take risks and, and see those kind of inflection points in their own careers and, and the organizations that they lead. So, you know, obviously I gave a description of Partners in Health and many of our audience will know the organization. Uh, I think many of them learned about it through the book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, uh, written by Tracy Kidder about the late Paul Farmer um, and about the origins in Haiti. Obviously you guys have grown quite a bit over the past several decades and you've been a large part of that over the past decade. Can you give us a bit of a sense of the current state of the organization and what your focus areas are? Obviously, I want to acknowledge the loss of Paul, which um, was such a, a shock and a, and a personal, professional loss for all of us. And I think he he changed the movement for global health in in a way that is is um, transformational. And feel very honored that I was able to work so closely with him. And we're we're committed to continuing his legacy long term and really fighting for health as a human right and global health equity as a as a you know a, a major movement. But now as you said at the beginning, you know, we work in in um we say 12 countries because we consider Navajo Nation a sovereign nation. And you know, with 19,000 employees, our focus is really on on a, a few major things. One is advancing the movement for global health equity. And we do that by um, focusing on health system strengthening. And I think what we all learned with COVID, for example, is that without a strong health system, you're not able to respond to a pandemic, a natural emergency, et cetera. And the best way to do that is to build a strong health system, not in the time of an emergency, but to commit to that long term. So that's always been our premise of partnering with the public sector, meaning we don't develop parallel systems. We work with ministries of health. We work with local leaders, work with local governments to ensure that we're long-term impacting the system. Another big piece of that is really focusing on building capacity and education. And from the very beginning, Dr. Farmer and, and colleagues were so committed to ensuring that we're bringing others along with us and we're decreasing reliance on people trained in, in other places um, beyond uh, the countries in which we work. So 99% of those who we work with, or 99% of our um, staff are from the countries in which we work. So we have over 6,000 employees in Haiti. There's, there's very few people who are not from Haiti. Same thing in all of our sites. So I think it's different because we're from those communities. We're grounded in those communities. And we look to address the gaps that are in front of us. Another big priority of ours is developing the people who are going to be moving this movement forward about global health equity we do that with bedside training, with with medicine residencies, with nurse training, and also with starting a university, uh, University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda is is another uh, you know important step that we wanted to take to ensure that we had the highest level of credentialing and providing opportunities for people. And then the third kind of, of um, immediate priority we have for the next five years is focusing on the needs of women, children, and adolescents. 
The majority of our work is in, in providing healthcare for 8 million people around the world. It is focused on women and children because that's who seeks healthcare around the world. So all aspects of maternal child health is what we focus on. And in a place like Sierra Leone, which has one of the highest rates of maternal mortality, we're really focused on developing a center of maternal health essential of maternal excellence to, again, bring the benefits of martyr medicine to places that have been disproportionately impacted by injustice. Wow, that's quite quite a lot. And um, obviously, the reason we even call this podcast Raise the Line is the whole thesis of strengthening healthcare systems, which, uh, you know, COVID revealed that even um, countries like the US have, have not invested enough in public health monitoring and, and response um, as, as we hope to moving forward to prevent the next pandemic. And I'm glad you mentioned UGHE as I, you know, before we got on the podcast, I mentioned that we, uh, they've been a great collaborator of ours. We've provided access to osmosis to them for, for some years. Um, and I think they're doing tremendous work to train people in place, right? So there's this movement among US medical schools to create campuses in different rural areas. Um, like NYIT just created a campus in Arkansas. Uh, to to find students who are from Arkansas, have roots in Arkansas, and potentially after they graduate from medical school at their Arkansas campus will stay in Arkansas. Stay, yeah. Because of, uh, you know, there's some evidence that we don't have a physician, as much of a physician shortage in the U.S. as we have a distribution issue where, you know, many of them just move to the cities and these rural health systems are shutting down. I imagine you magnify that by 10 or 100 times in many of these countries that, that partners in health works in. So, yeah, can you, do you mind talking a bit more about UGHE? And uh, I know you were just there recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an amazing campus in rural Rwanda and is, um, you know, we work very closely with the Rwandan government as well as many partners. And thank you for, for your support. And it's, you know, we have a master's in global health delivery and then we have a, um, a medical school and a nursing leadership program, but the medical school um, enrolls about 30 to 40 people each year. We just started our fourth cohort and 75% of that group have to be women. And I think that's to try to, again, um, you know, at least for for a, a, the foreseeable future, we know we need to try to to change the gender imbalance. And so uh, currently it's been Rwandan students as well as um, students from East Africa in the past past few years. But next year will be students from our Africa sites of Malawi, Lesotho, Sierra Leone and Liberia. So we'll have partners in health, motivated, young, amazing people who will will enter this six and a half year program of medical school. And the, the campus is really focused on community education. And when I was there, went on a, a um, home visit with community health workers and all of the medical students are, are embedded in the community and work in the community with community health workers. And this amazing woman, a community health worker, when she was introducing herself, said, my name is Janine, I'm a community health worker and I'm a university lecturer. And I thought that is 100% what we were striving for, that that woman who is truly the woman who the person who is ensuring that pregnant women get to the facility to deliver, is able to take care and make sure kids get immunizations. That is really the foundation of that community is 
valued and sees herself as a university lecturer and sees that her responsibility is to ensure that those medical students understand the context and the lives and the shoes in which these women walk. It was one of the most you know, amazing experiences I've had um, at Partners in Health and immediately wanted to text Paul and say, Paul, you know, our, our, our vision has 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 really um, come to fruition because he really saw the link between academia and clinical and the community had to be a deliberate and authentic one. Yeah, that is really powerful. And, and hopefully we'll hear more of those kind of stories. And, you know, obviously to, to scale the impact to train more healthcare workers, not just, uh, you know, medical and nursing providers, but frontline healthcare workers, community healthcare workers, we have a long way to go. What are what are some of the ideas, you know, partners in health or or just other organizations you've interacted with have had that you think are compelling for us to address the massive shortage we're seeing globally? Yeah, I think, you know, I think community health workers are certainly part of the answer. We we saw, as you said, that in the U.S., not having a strong public health or community, you know, centered approach to health. It really showed uh, COVID showed the the or, or illuminated the challenges with that, but I think we know globally that it's certainly doctors and nurses are are, are a huge you know need, but also there's operational logistics. Logistics is huge in terms of fighting the Ebola response. I had a very different appreciation and understanding of the need for logistics that I I would ever ever had before because of trying to get PPE of trying to get chlorine and knew that we couldn't do clinical care without that so I think we look at the the team needed to provide global health or provide health in general is um is really um multi or interdisciplinary and and we need to value drivers we need to value you know chiefs of surgery we need to value environmental health people and all of those people are critical and we need to push care into the community and community health workers we see and there's 12,000 of them at Partners in Health, we see as a core foundational piece of what we do because it's people from those communities like that community health worker, Janine, who is the foundation and hooks people into the the facilities um, and ensuring that people are getting care, those who need it most. But I think it is a, um, we need to broaden our view and, and look at ways of educating uh, people in very different and unique ways. Um, and we're hoping that the University of Global Health Equity in Rwanda and uh, eventually in Haiti will be a place where it can be a platform for educating many, many people, not just the current programs we have. Yeah, that that's an exciting kind of vision for for that. Two two quick follow-ups on that. I actually didn't know there's a UGHE planned in, in Haiti. Is there a timeline for that at this point or? The, our hope is, you know, we're we have that was Paul's um, one of Paul's uh, biggest plans was to ensure that we had the university also in Haiti, and so we're will take us a while. So we it will be a, a longer process, but we're building on the success of the residency programs that are happening already at the Mirabelle Hospital we have in the Central Plateau. So we'll be starting programs in the next couple of years um, and are really excited about taking lessons learned from Rwanda, but also really honoring the unique context of Haiti. And all of our PH sites, except for probably Kazakhstan and Russia, were started by uh, our Haitian colleagues who came from Samuel Santa or PH Haiti and moved to Rwanda, moved to Lesotho, moved to Malawi, 
So really it is this, this amazing um, kind of network um, and uh, the, the heart and the activism and the pragmatic solidarity really comes from HEAP. Um, and that's where we started and an important piece of our history and our future. So, you know, really knowing that we want to have a, a, a university at some point in Haiti is also honoring that past. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And obviously, if we can be helpful, like we have in Rwanda with with those plans, we'd be excited to be. Um, the second follow up is, you know, you have 12,000 community healthcare workers that Partners in Health employs. How do you, you know, it's a large health, basically a large health system. How do you uh, educate them and make sure that as things evolve, as, you know, COVID comes out or, you know, new medications or treatments come out, um, that they're up to date on their knowledge? Like, is there some sort of centralized thing or do you work with the governments? How, how does that happen? Yeah, I think all of the above. We we work obviously with the governments because our our care is embedded in the public sector. So our, our community health workers in Rwanda, for example, are all linked into the, the existing Rwandan Ministry of Health community health worker system of which they also have have many. So I think we we work on both with official things that happen with governments in terms of of uh, rolling out about COVID, for example, but also we have specialized community health workers in mental health, for example, we have specialized community health workers. We do an NCDs, we do in a variety of areas. So we also provide that advanced training and it's all done not again in isolation of the community, but ensuring it's hooked back to our clinicians at our health health centers and hospitals, et cetera. So we're, we have community health teams in each place that we work and there's um, uh, that it's hooked very much into our clinical care. So the checking blood glucose levels at home, for example, which now community health workers do in Rwanda is very much connected to our non-communicable disease clinicians at the health facilities and the hospitals so that we're ensuring that the right education is taking place and that also they're learning what what is beyond their scope and when they should be um, connecting and, and talking to nurses at the health center and and specialized physicians. So we're we consider community health workers as such a core part of our our work around the world that it's really embedded in our view of a comprehensive health system. So the ongoing education of community health workers is just as integral as the doctors and nurses and others that we work with. That's awesome. That's really, really great to hear. And something we should definitely follow up on. We we just started working with Indian government um, to train about 250,000 ASHA workers, community healthcare workers, which should reach about 90 million Indian citizens or in, in, residents of India. Uh, and translation and cultural localization is a big part of that, obviously. You know, you preempted one of my questions, which is, you know, Osmosis is a health education, you know, teaching company. If you could snap your fingers and train every you know, healthcare professional or every patient out there on something, on one one or two concepts, what, what would it be and why? I think looking at health in a broad way of um, also um, knowing that you have to address the social support aspects of it, I think is critical. I think we've, we've learned, you know, through HIV work, which I obviously have done for so many decades, that you can provide the best antiretrovirals, but if you don't provide food, people are not going to, they're not going to do well. They're not going to be able to tolerate the medications and they're not going to respond to the same way. So I think if we were able to infuse that, it's, it's just as important that you're asking about 
a a woman's um you know what what is her life like at home does she have food for her kids you know stopping the cycle of treating kids multiple times for malnutrition because you're actually addressing the core issue of of hunger and starvation if we all took this broader view of comprehensive health and didn't see it as the social the the social worker does that or that's that's it that's a nice to have we really see it as a core part of healthcare. So if we were able to broaden people's view and see that that housing, transportation, um, nutrition, opportunities for employment, et cetera, are, are, are key components of this, particularly for the most vulnerable. And we have a lot of people working on these different silos. So if we were able to have people broaden their view of health, I think we would we would have much better outcomes, all of us. That's, yeah, totally. And I think that's maybe one of the few silver linings I've seen from COVID is it's accelerated adoption of everything from telehealth to value-based medicine. We're seeing a lot more of that, at least in the US. I don't know how, how much that's translated internationally, um, but certainly these are key themes. Uh, SEOH, social determinants of health, are mm-hmm. now part of a lot of med- medical and nursing school curricula. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's so important because there's going to be different pathogens. There's going to be different pandemics, different viruses. But if we don't get this core piece of seeing people comprehensively, then we're going to continue to see that pandemics, that diseases are disproportionately impact marginalized people and vulnerable communities. And so we, that has to be built into our responses. Well, I know we're coming up in time, so I had two uh, two more questions for you. The first is just, again, you have a very unique background, both leading this 19,000 person strong or global organization, uh, but starting your career treating HIV and AIDS in the 1980s and and, uh, and then also doing Ebola response. You've now seen several pandemics uh, come out, um, very different causes, very different responses and, and lasting effects. Do you have any sort of overarching like lessons you've learned or want to impart? Uh, because obviously there, there will be another one and, you know, hopefully not not in the near future, but there will be, it's inevitable, you know, things you've learned that you'd love our audience to know about. I think really, you know, I, I wish we had learned more lessons from HIV um, to apply to uh, to Ebola to apply for, for COVID because I think we learned so much and we learned that stigmatization of diseases really is does impact people's outcomes. And I think even with COVID, in terms of who was impacted and who had the most morbidity and mortality, we knew where, you know, we saw were from vulnerable communities, marginalized communities, which is the same as HIV. And the answer or part of the answer is really having a strong community response. So during Ebola, for example, we knew that having a company tours of community health workers be part of the answer we knew that from HIV. We knew that from from uh, TB and MDR TB. So we hired Ebola survivors in Sierra Leone, and they became our community health workers in in out and educating about about Ebola and how to keep safe. And that had dual purpose. One, it also was this you know reach into the community, but it also valued those people. So they were getting paid. They were being respected. They were able to to then have an entree back into their communities where they had been ostracized, similar to what happened with HIV, I think. So I, I think knowing that any response to any pandemic or even um, anything that's kind of impacts overall health has to include people who are embedded in the communities and there has to be localized solutions. 
Um, and we need to figure out how we're engaging communities, not as one-off, but truly during an emergency, but also beyond, most importantly beyond, so that there's strong relationships already made in places where we had strong community health worker networks and people, we know that people were much more willing to take the vaccines because there was a trusted ambassador, somebody who they knew knew before somebody was showing up to give them a shot. And so we, I think we have to learn from that and, and know that our best way of fighting any future pandemic is having a community-based healthcare tied and and um, being part of a, a larger comprehensive system, but not having it be so focused in the hospital in the U.S. You know, for example, and, and during COVID, I felt like we were fighting for the same model, but in Sierra Leone, I was fighting for an ICU so that we could, you know, give advanced level of care in, in Massachusetts and in Montgomery, Alabama, we were fighting for community, you know, community health workers and to address social support. Part of the same model, but but really looking at different ends of the spectrum, but still trying to provide the same model of an equity-based um, health system. Wow, I love the, those examples, and especially the investing in the community sort of epitomizes that that phrase: uh, "Think global, act local." Uh, yeah. So it sounds like you guys do a great job of that. My last question is, uh, you know, obviously we have an audience of many, uh, I think we're approaching 2.5 million registered learners, most of whom are current or future healthcare professionals, early stage healthcare professionals and across medicine, nursing, PA, community health. Uh, what's your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this particular moment in time and approaching their careers in healthcare? I think it's finding your foundational bedrock. For me, it was around activism, social justice around, you know, because of the HIV community and, and saw vulnerable communities and, and how they were impacted by something like HIV. So I think it's fine the thing that you're passionate about, but also be willing and open to learn in, in from different communities. I learned a tremendous amount from um the uh, HIV activism community, and it really impacted my entire career. If I hadn't been open to people who looked different from me, who came from different backgrounds, who were, who who had totally different, um, you know, uh, life experiences, I I don't know where I would be now. And and I think it's really being open to that, and valuing the expertise of the lived experience, and so recognizing that your teachers may be that community health worker, Janine who doesn't, can't read or write. Or it could be somebody who's a, you know, a, an expert neurologist at a top teaching hospital, but both are very, very valuable. And I think learners and students being open to that, I, I think will put people on the right path. I love that. And, and kind of validates again, that thing you learn in medical or nursing school of your patient being your best teacher ultimately, uh, and just just viewing everyone as a, as a source of learning. Yeah. Well, Sheila, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, and most importantly, for the work that you've done over the past several decades to advance health equity and, and improve health outcomes globally. Thank you, and thanks so much for your partnership. We we know it's really important that we take these important resources and make them available around the world, and so we really appreciate that. Totally. Your team is fantastic. We, we love working with UGHE. So with that, uh, I'm Shivirani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care.
For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.